Let's pray. We come to you, Lord, at the beginning of a new week, at the end of this Lord's day, and we're asking for your help, your tender mercy that you would speak to us, that you would help us to learn from your word who you are, how to live. You would convict us of sin and you would lead us to the cross. Be with us now. Draw near to us, Lord, as we draw near to you by your spirit, through your word. In Jesus we pray, amen. There's a story in the New Testament where Paul is visiting the great city of Athens. Athens, like Cambridge or Oxford today or Boston, was a famous intellectual city. It was renowned for its history and its learning, its architecture, its, its, its great contribution to culture. Athens was said to be the glory of Greece. And yet, if you know the story from Acts chapter 17, you'll remember Paul's immediate reaction as he waited there for his companions in the city of Athens. As Paul was there in this world-class city, Remember what Paul's response was? Was he impressed with their intellect? Did he fall in love with the the many buildings and the architecture? Was he amazed with their food? Think of all the things that you might want somebody to standing there in uptown Charlotte. It's not downtown. Don't ever call it downtown. There's nothing down about it. It's all up. Uptown Charlotte. All the things you might want a visitor to remark on the gleaming buildings and the financial capital and the cultural influence and the fine eating establishments. What does Paul say there in the midst of the glory of Greece? Well, we read in Acts seventeen sixteen, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And later... He says to the Athenians, in effect, look, I can see you are very religious. He he notices there's a statue to an unknown God. He can see uh, you have temples and rituals and all sorts of pantheons of gods and goddesses, statues all over the place. I can see you are really into worship. But he says, in effect, I'm telling you, you don't know what you're doing. And however sincere your worship might be, you are going about it in the wrong way. And he says, let me tell to you then, the God that you worship is unknown, I will declare to you. Paul was provoked in his spirit. He could see and feel, no matter how smart these people were, how very impressive their learning, how deeply spiritual they may have been in one sense, or even how sincere they were. They were worshiping God in a way that did not please him. Sincerity is not the measure of truth. Many people in our day think it is, well, you really mean well, you mean it from the bottom of your heart, you're very sincere, then surely God is pleased for you just showing up. But we see here, Paul was grieved, provoked in his spirit to see these smart people going about their worship in all the wrong ways. If the first commandment was against worshiping the wrong God, the second commandment is against worshiping God in the wrong way. And the people of Athens were guilty of both. They were ignorant of the God who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead. 
And at the same time, their approach to religion was not the one that God approved of. They were guilty of both the first and the second commandment, breaking both of them. Tonight we come to the second commandment. Here's what we read in Exodus chapter 20, verses 4, 5, and 6. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Most generally, the second commandment forbids self-willed worship. That is, worshiping God as we choose rather than as he demands. And the second commandment, you can see, follows closely on the heels of the first. If there is but one God and he is the only God and he demands to be worshipped as the only God, then surely this God has a right to tell us how he wants to be worshipped. In particular, the second commandment made two prohibitions. One, we are not to make images to represent God in any form. And two, we are not to worship images of any kind. The second commandment was not meant to outlaw all forms of art or painting or sculpture or any sort of aesthetic considerations. The tabernacle, you may remember, had displays of angels and there were palm trees on the curtains and the the Ark of the Covenant had the, the two angels, the cherubim, with their wings outstretched and God himself will give the spirit to Bezalel and Ohaliab who will be the spirit-inspired artisans and craftsmen to construct the temple. So God is not against beauty. What he prohibits is infusing an object with spiritual efficacy. As if man-made artifacts can bring us closer to God, represent God, or establish communion with God. Let me say that again. What he prohibits is infusing any object with spiritual efficacy, as if man-made artifacts can bring us closer to God, represent God, or establish communion with God. Those are called idols. And we see numerous examples in the Old Testament, the most famous of which we'll come to some um, one of these years or decades in Exodus chapter 34, 32 and 33 with the sin of the golden calf. Now remember, Aaron fashioned this calf. They gave their gold and it just sort of came out. And he proclaimed a feast to Yahweh. And the people declared, these are the gods that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. You see what's happening there? They thought they were worshiping Yahweh. They didn't say, let's have a feast to Dagon. Let's now have a feast to Asherah or Baal. They had every intention to worship Yahweh. They said, we're going to declare a feast to Yahweh. We want to celebrate Yahweh. Yahweh is the one who brought us out of Egypt. And so what are we going to do? We're going to have a great big worship party, and we're going to make at the center of it a golden calf. Won't God be so pleased that we're gathering to worship him? Of course, God wasn't 
said, whatever your intentions to declare this a feast to me, you are worshiping me in ways that I did not design in ways that I do not approve. They were violating the second commandment. They may have been trying to worship the Lord their God, but they were doing it in the wrong way. At other times, the Israelites would treat their religious symbols like they had real spiritual powers. And this too was a violation of the second commandment. In 1 Samuel 4, they turned the ark into some sort of talisman. Remember, they thought, if we go out into battle and we have the ark with us, boy, this is going to be awesome and people's faces are going to be melting and this is just going to be, everything is going to be so incredible because we can't lose if we have the ark. Or in Jeremiah chapter 7, when God was punishing his people, Jeremiah says they, some of them just kept chanting, well, the temple, the temple, the temple. You know, we have the temple, we're invincible. This is another form of idolatry, even though God commanded the temple to be built. Even though God commanded the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant to be constructed, yet the people fell into this idolatry thinking that these things would save them. We can be tempted to do the same things, thinking that the church building itself, and we're incredibly thankful for this magnificent space and all of the ministry that happens in here. And in a sense, you could call this a sanctuary. It is a a part uh, set apart for a building set apart for the worship of the Lord. You can call it a sanctuary or a worship center or the Puritans would call it a meeting house. You can have a lot of different names, but just so long as you realize that there's nothing holy about the bricks here and in the pews. Could you worship God if you were under a tree or in a tent, camping even. <laughs> Sometimes we infuse some sort of spiritual efficacy to the building or, or, or the pulpit. This, this pulpit is what has the power. Or I have, a, you know, or you wear a, a cross necklace and then somehow that's the real spiritual energy. We can do the same thing. We infuse these man-made objects with spiritual efficacy as if they themselves are what make us closer to God. And there have been many, many churches which in the end become a sort of museum of faith rather than an an army or a hospital, just a museum where they just all remember the good old days and just sort of glory in a wonderful building that God gave them. And there's long since been no real spiritual power. Like most of the Decalogue, the second commandment is not terribly hard to understand. The what is pretty straightforward. The why and the how take some more explanation. So what I want to do, just a moment, I'm going to give you five reasons for the prohibitions in the second commandment, and then five ways that we can obey the second commandment in our lives. So five and five. But before we get there, I want us to look at one other aspect of the commandment. Before we get to the commandment and the obligation itself, We have to ask this other question. What is this part here about God visiting the sins of the fathers? You see that in verse 5? I am the Lord your God, a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of others who love me and keep my commandments. This warning is repeated elsewhere in the Old Testament. Numbers 14, Exodus 34, Jeremiah 32. But what does it mean, I will visit the sins of the fathers? 
It is not, I repeat, not a reference to generational curses or hexes or demonic oppression, nor does it mean that a righteous child will be punished for the sins of his wicked father. I want you to turn for a moment to Ezekiel chapter 18. Ezekiel at 18, you'll see in the ESV, this is page 705 in the Pew Bibles, it has a heading, the soul whose sins shall die. And it seems that Exodus 18 is perhaps trying to correct a misunderstanding that may have been prevalent among some Israelites because of this frequent warning that God will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and God will bless those and their children to thousands of generations. There may have been some misunderstanding that the Israelites had a kind of mechanical view. Well, my mom and dad were good, so God's going to be nice to me. My mom and dad were real scoundrels, therefore I'm in big trouble. It doesn't really matter what I do as a child. It's all just sort of uh, written in the stars of my DNA and what my parents were like. We still have that sort of misunderstanding. And so here comes Ezekiel, and just look at verse 20. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So what does, what does that mean? Well, this warning is talking about God's judgment on those who walk in the wicked ways of their parents and grandparents. And then Ezekiel, conversely, is talking about those who will leave the wicked ways of their grandparents and parents. So there's two things going on, one in Exodus, and it's repeated elsewhere, and then another statement here in Ezekiel, and we have to figure out how the two go together. Because on the one hand, it sounds like, well, you're going to suffer for the sins of your parents. And the other hand, it sounds like, no, no, God's not going to reward you because you have good parents, and he's not going to punish you because your mother and father sinned. So how do these two things fit together? We have to understand the context here in Ezekiel with these exiles facing this situation under the Lord's discipline. They're sort of asking themselves the question, how how do we get out of this mess? And are we just doomed because mom and dad were sinners and here we are, we're exiles. And God is saying, look, the soul who sins shall die. You will not suffer for the iniquity of the fathers. That is, you can repent. You can change. You can turn. You don't have to be these exiles. You don't have to be under the Lord's wrath. There is a way to return and to repent. It's not all just fated for you. And then you go to Exodus and you think, well, what's the situation there? Well, you have people who have just gotten out of slavery and they're learning what it means to follow the Lord. And God wants to impress upon them the serious consequences if they disobey. And so he says, I want you to note this very well that what you do is going to have some influence on your children. Now, here's the, the, the key word that connects the two and makes one complementary with another. If you go back to Exodus chapter 20, notice it says, I am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So the children share in their father's punishment because they share in their father's sins. Ezekiel teaches, if you turn away from your father's sin, you can escape your father's punishment. Exodus says, if you keep on sinning as your father did, you will not escape your father's punishment. So you can't say, 
Oh, well, I'm only doing what mom and dad taught me to do. How can you blame me? You can't excuse your disobedience by pointing to your upbringing or your culture or your personal history. God will punish the next generation if they continue in the sins, even if they learned those sins from a previous generation. And when it says God visits the sins of the fathers on the next generation, what it means is that he will allow the effects of sin to run their course and infect the next generation so that they continue to sin and that they suffer as a result. Have you ever realized in the Bible, one of the greatest punishments for sin is more sin. One of the worst things God can do You see it in Romans 1. He gave them over. He gave them over. He gave them to what they wanted. He removed his restraining hand and said, if that's who you want to be, go for it. It's a scary thought. If that's what you want to do, America, go for it. There's so many people who think if God would just get off our backs, and they may find that the very worst thing that could ever happen to them or their people is that God would get off their back, loosen his restraining hand, hand. So God visits the sins by allowing the sins of the children to continue in the steps of the father and therefore to face his judgment. So this warning in Exodus 20 and combine it with the clarification in Ezekiel 18 tells us two important things. First, your parents do not create your future. They shape your future. They're instrumental. They're what God has placed in our lives, but parents do not create your future. So children, it's all of us, whether our parents are long gone or they're sitting next to us. Children, you are not locked in either by obedience, which leads to blessing, or by disobedience, which leads to punishment. You will have to make decisions for yourself what to do with God and his word. That's the first thing. Your parents do not create your future. They shape it. They influence it. They don't create it. Second, parents, you can, nevertheless, by your faithfulness to God or your faithlessness to him, give your children a downhill slide toward righteousness or a downhill slide toward wickedness. Let me flesh that out. See, what Ezekiel is is teaching us is that we are responsible moral agents. And we must face the consequences of our own decisions. That's what Ezekiel is reminding us. What Exodus is reminding us is that though our parents don't create our future, they do go a long ways toward shaping it and making either our choice for obedience easier or harder. One of the controversial words in our day is the word privilege. People talk about this had a a symposium at at CDS trying to think about this and explain and help people think through privilege. What does that mean? And it's a difficult topic and immediately people get nervous about what you're going to say. I think if, if privilege means you call me to renounce everything about me or my background or my family, then it's not the right term. If, however, privilege means you call me to recognize what I've been given and be responsible with my gifts, then I think it's a helpful category. 
Because I may like to think that, well, here I am, and I'm a pastor, and I'm, I'm married, and I have kids, and look at me being, you know, I've just made some really good decisions in my life. But if I really look at it, I had a thousand blessings, advantages, some people would call them privileges, that some people don't have. I had two parents that loved each other. I was raised in a a loving environment. My parents brought me to church every Sunday, brought me to church uh, Sunday night. They brought me to church on Wednesday. I had siblings, all of whom are walking with the Lord. I had uh, a safe neighborhood. I never wondered where I was going to have a meal to eat. I never had people coming up and offering me drugs. I didn't fear for my life. I went to uh, a school where I had a good education. I can go on and on and on. I feel like I have been given 10,000 blessings that I did nothing to deserve. Don't call it stewardship, call it privilege, call it blessing, call it favor, call it any number of things. But I do think God calls us to recognize to whom much is given, much is expected. And I say all of that to give a word to parents that you can set your children up. You can't create their future, but you can set them up by your faithfulness to the Lord to either make it easier for them to choose righteousness in the way of faith or more difficult. I think, sure, I had to face decisions. Am I going to go and am I going to drink? Am I going to be this sort of person? Am I going to go to this party? Am I going to do this? By the time I had all the upbringing from my parents, from my church, from my family, all, all these things, it was relatively easy for someone in my position to choose what is right. Where there will be other people because of a thousand things out of their control that they had no choice over, that they were born into, will make it much more difficult. Now, still responsible for their decisions. Still responsible moral agents, as Ezekiel reminds us. But this warning here in Exodus is to help us think what sort of trajectory we might be lining up for our children and our grandchildren. God will show mercy to thousands who love him. It's not a precise math formula, okay, three, four generations, and then after that, you're good to go, and thousands. It's poetic. It's Moses saying, look, I'm going to bless you for thousands of years if you love me. But for those who follow in their parents' wickedness and hate me, I will continue to punish. It means God is more eager to be gracious than he is to punish. It means God's memory for godliness, in a sense, is better than his memory for ungodliness. He is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And he calls us to set our families on a direction so that it will be easier for our children to choose the way of life and more difficult to choose the way that leads to death. So why the second commandment? Let me give you five reasons for the prohibitions in the second commandment. First, because God is free. He prohibits images and idols because God is free. See, once you have something to represent God or be your God or worship as if it were God, then you undermine God's freedom. You can think, well, look, I can bring God with me. Here he is. He's a little statue. We think we can manage God with rituals. We can treat him like a good luck charm. Once we think that if we just pray in the direction of Jerusalem, 
or we pray in the right place, or we wear the right clothes, or we have the right image around our necks, or we recite the certain phrase or prayer, then we get God's attention. We have undermined his freedom. John 4.24, God is spirit. He does not have a body. He cannot be seen. So it is not for us to make the invisible God visible. That's the first reason for the second commandment. It undermines God's freedom. Second, we have the prohibitions in the second commandment because God is jealous. You see that explicitly in verse 5. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. No image will be as good as God. No matter how skilled the craftsman, no matter how expensive the pearls and the gold and the silver, it will still be far less than God. Think again about the analogy of a marriage. The more chaste and pure a husband, the more his jealousy is aroused by an adulterous wife. God is supremely pure. He cannot bear for his glory to be shared with another. Even if we mean for that image to somehow represent God's glory. God is a being unto himself. His glory cannot be captured in a photo or a picture or a statue or a form. Think about Revelation. You know, we have this amazing vision of him who sits on the throne. But you notice the vision that is shown to us is really a picture of visual metaphors, lightning and rainbow and colors and sea and fire and lamps and thrones. Remember the the context here for the second commandment. The, The world of the ancient Near East divinized everything. By that I mean that stone could have divine properties and the clouds had divine power and the tree over there was a divine totem of some sort. They divinized everything. The Israelites were to divinize nothing because there was only one God and he was in heaven and he was invisible. So they were not to infuse with divine efficacy, Father Time or Mother Earth or the sun up above. The separation between God and his creation is one of the fundamental building blocks of biblical Christianity. You have two categories of being, God and not God. And anyone then who tries to create something to show forth God with the category of not God is going to end up with something less than God. He's a jealous God. He does not want to give his glory to another, something so far beneath him. Third reason for this commandment, In biblical religion, sight normally comes by sound. Or to put it another way, we see by hearing. The experience on Sinai would become a paradigm for the Lord's self-revelation. Later, Deuteronomy 4 would make this point. He says, when I appeared to you on the mountain out of the midst of fire, you heard the sound of words but saw no form. I met you on the mountain. I was very present with you on the mountain, and you saw no form. You heard a voice. The implication being, don't act corruptly, therefore, by making images. Romans 10, faith comes by hearing. 
We ought to make no apologies for being centered on words and on the word. That's how God designed it to be because he has chosen to reveal himself through sound. We see God by hearing his word. Sometimes people complain, well, you know, Protestant or Reformed worship service, it's all, it's just really wordy. Well, that's because the wordy was with God and the wordy was God. (laughs) We are unapologetically people of the word. To see is to hear. To hear is how we see Fourth reason for the second commandment, God provides his own mediators. The saints in the Old Testament were not to fashion an intermediary for themselves because God had already promised mediators, that is, go-betweens, in terms of the prophets, the priests, and the kings. And then the final mediator to embrace all three offices would come in the person of the God-man, Jesus Christ. So God understands you have this impulse, you're on earth, I'm in heaven, the distance and the gulf is great, and so our human instinct is we need something to go between. We need an intermediary. So maybe this statue will help bring God down to earth. Well, God says, I'll provide my own mediators. I'll give you prophets, I'll give you priests, I'll give you kings, and one day, one is coming who will be a prophet, priest, and king unlike any you've ever seen. God provides his own mediators. And then the fifth reason for the second commandment. We don't need to create images of God because he has already created them. What does that mean? Think about it. Go back to Genesis. God made us in his image after his likeness. It was often the case in the ancient world that in order to declare that some region or territory belonged to that God, you would put a statue of the God there. And so there would be a little fertility call. And you could say, well, this region here belongs to the God of the sky. And this now, oh, we see his, his statues here looking around. Kind of like we would fly a flag and say, you're in the state of North Carolina. You're in the country of the United States of America. Well, the, they would put up their statues and their icons for all the gods and goddesses to say, this is mine. This is my world. See my image. God did the very same thing. He made us in his image to say in all the world, do you see? This is mine. Look at there, there. There's my image. There's my little statue. There's my icon. Do you see it? I placed it already in the world. In you, in me, divine image bearers. If you have your finger in Ezekiel 18, go back there. Let me show you one other thing in this passage. In verse 11, Ezekiel is giving a list of ways in which God's people have sinned against him. And just see if you notice something about this list of sins. It says at the end of verse 11, those who eat upon the mountains. And then it goes into a list of uh, neighborly sins. Second commandment kind of violations, or second table violations, defiles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor and needy, commits robbery, does not restore the pledge. So that's you've you've made a promise to someone and you don't fulfill it. Lifts up his eyes to the idols, commits abomination, 
which many people think is a, is a reference to sexual immorality, lends at interest, takes profits. Now, do you see what's happening here? In the middle of all these neighborly sins, all these one another sins, sins of sexual immorality, sins of oppression, sins of cheating your neighbor, then we have, curiously, he lifts up his eyes to an idol. Now, why would you put the sin of idolatry, which seems to be about worshiping God, in the midst of all of these other neighborly one another sins? Well, many commentators think, and I'm persuaded by it, that this sin of idolatry is in the middle of all these other neighborly sins because they have the same root, namely looking for God's image where it doesn't belong and ignoring God's image where it exists. All of these sins are in some way violations of the second commandment. Idolatry, noticeably, a violation of the second commandment because you're putting idols and images where they shouldn't be, but all those neighborly sins violate the second commandment because you're not seeing the image that you should see. You're, you're, you're cheating with someone's spouse. When you, when you get on your computer and you look at pornography, it's a violation of the second commandment because it is forgetting that whomever you are looking at on there is a divine image bearer. These sins listed in Ezekiel 18, you're cheating the poor, you're oppressing them, you're committing sins against one another. They're not recognizing the image of God in their fellow men and women. A violation of the second commandment, just as making the image in idols would be. So we don't need to create images because God has already created them. And we have a room full of them. That's the why. Let's finish with some how. How then do we apply the second commandment in our lives? Let me quickly give you five ways. First, we guard against images of God, both external and imagined. During the time of the Reformation, many of the Catholic apologists tried to make a distinction between worship and veneration. They knew the second commandment. And so they said, when we have these statues in our churches and these relics, we are, we're not worshiping them, we're venerating them. It's something different. And the reformers looked at the different Greek words and said, you're making a distinction without a difference. And one of the sayings they had was, look at what they do, not at what they say. Because what, however they were finally parsing out their veneration versus their worship, you could see that they were putting trust in these statues and they were bowing to these images. I'm not talking about a nativity set on your table or a figurine angel or art of some kind, but rather using pictures to focus you in prayer or statues and icons that you kiss or kneel before in worship or relics that you infuse with spiritual significance and efficacy or thinking that if you have a vial of water from the Jordan River, that's going to make you holy. No matter how we might try to parse it, it is a violation of the second commandment. Imagine the Israelites saying, well, the golden calf was just an aid of worship. It was just representing God or we were just venerating it, not worshiping it. God would not have been impressed. We must also guard against those, those mental images of God. Sometimes I've heard it said, and, and it's, and it's well-meaning, 
But people will say, look, I just want you to, you know, maybe someone who's really struggling with, with suffering or struggling with some sense of their own worth. And someone will say, I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to imagine that God is there and he's running with you and he has his arms open wide and God is embracing you. Now, I think what that person means to say is I want to imagine as if God's arms are around you. That's certainly biblical language. Or think of the prodigal son with the father running to you. So all of these are good divine images of God's compassion. But we must not lead one another to think in our minds. Form a mental image. I want you to picture God in your mind's eye. Westminster Larger Catechism says the second commandment forbids the making any representation of God or all or any of the three persons, either inwardly in our mind or outwardly in any kind of image or likeness of any creature whatsoever. Again, it undermines God's freedom, his otherness, even with mental images. Second, we obey the second commandment when we do not contribute to the idolatry of others. So that's the second application. Do not contribute to the idolatry of others. Have you noticed back in Exodus 20, verse 3, first commandment says, you shall not have. Second commandment, you shall not make. The first commandment is about possession. The second commandment is about manufacturing. You shall not have another God, but neither shall you even make another God or an image or a likeness. Now, I imagine that very few of you are formally involved in idol-making. Here's my business card. I make statues for people to worship. But it is something for all of us to consider. Are we producing, selling, advertising, or furthering products or services that may be sinful in themselves or lend themselves to great abuse and would be wrong in the very use of them. In other words, let us not, as the second commandment says, make any idols or images. Don't want to lead people. I, I remember years ago a friend of mine saying he had this great moral quandary working at a electronics store and this was back when cell phones were just coming out and you still you know had to pull up like the little cord and the whole and then you'll flip it open and you know those things are fun you can see them in museums now but he would say he he didn't know he, he felt this pull because he was really good he was a very outgoing person he was very good at sales and he could see i am selling in that case products to people that i can tell can't afford them And I'm really good at getting people to get the most expensive thing. There's nothing against um, selling. There's nothing against trying to get a good sale. But he was at least facing the sort of quandary that we ought to face as Christians. That my role here, he realized, is not just that I want to make a good commission and I want to have a good bottom line. But I need to think about this neighbor who's in front of me and what I'm selling. Are we thinking of our role, not just in committing idolatry ourselves, but in perhaps leading others? into idolatry. Third, we obey the second commandment. How? Consider the wisdom of the regulative principle. What's the regulative principle? And do we have to talk about it at 701? Well, just for a moment. The regulative principle simply means that when we gather for corporate worship, rather than saying, 
hey, I wonder what would be cool to do this week. We say, let's worship God in ways that we know are pleasing to him with elements we know he has prescribed. Elements like praying, singing, preaching, giving gifts, reading scripture. So there was this controversy coming out of the Reformation, especially coming out of the Catholic Church, when they had all these elaborate rites and ceremonies and what do you do here and you bow down and then you kiss the the finger of the priest and then you do something with um, the the candles up front and all these things were were infused with spiritual significance and some people were saying look you know what those that those things don't mean anything to me that's fine with my conscience and other people were saying when I do those things that were from my my old background and traditions I I feel dirty I feel like I'm violated And so the church had to think through, well, what are we going to do in corporate worship? And so the wisdom of the reformers was this regulative principle, which is rooted in the second commandment, to say if we're all going to get along in corporate worship, if corporate worship is more than just, well, what do you like? And what what do millennials like? And what do boomers like? And let's try to get just something that everybody likes. And just what, what would you like to have? Instead, we say, what are the things that God has prescribed such that We are only asking of you in corporate worship to do things that Scripture itself would ask you to do. So the Reformers were very sensitive to this. If we ask somebody to, you know, bow down and and kiss the the communion wafer, maybe one Christian can say, well, I do that in, in honor to Christ. And another person says, well, when I do that, I feel like my conscience is violated. The Reformers said, there's nothing in Scripture that tells us to do that. So we can't force this person to violate his conscience. So the regulative principle says, according to the Heidelberg Catechism, puts it well, that we in no way make any image of God nor worship him in any other way than he has commanded us in his word. It's not about being, you know, the typical Presbyterians. They're the frozen chosen and they're just, you know, they're just all lockstep and we never do anything, never show emotion, No, it's about actually freedom in worship, freedom to say everything that we put into a service of corporate worship, we want scriptural warrant for in both the words and the form and the elements. Now, again, there are going to be cultural distinctives, you know, what time you meet and what the building looks like and what instruments you use. Scripture doesn't mean to give us instruction on all of that, but it does mean to tell us how God is to be worshipped. Fourth, how can we obey the second commandment? Let us remedy the ignorance of God's people by giving them what they need, not necessarily what they want. Again, the argument in the Reformation regarding images was, look, we we can't lose images. We can't lose all the pictures and the stained glass and all the statues in our cathedrals because these are the books of the laity, they said. They can't read, which they couldn't. They, they, They won't understand. So if we take away the pictures, how are they going to know about the Christian faith? The reformers came to a person and all of them said, look, we must teach them. Christianity is a religion where faith comes by hearing. And so they faced the same dilemma that many churches face today. Do we adorn the spectacle or do we educate the people? There was a reason that schools popped up so often with different Reformed and Protestant churches because they saw the great need in making a literate population, people who could read their Bibles, people who are well-trained, 
It's not to make us elitist or snobbish or impatient with people who may not know as much. We don't want to be purposefully intimidating. But it is to say, we see, rather than adorning the spectacle, we will educate the people. Every, every fourth grader in the state of Michigan has to learn Michigan history. I'm sure you do something similar, and our kids will learn North Carolina history. Part of that in fourth grade, they would all go to Mackinac Island. They really visit it sometime, like in the warm week, and go there. And it's an island uh, on the Lake Huron side, and uh, it's it's has no it doesn't allow any cars. You just have horses. It's like a, it's just a little island. You go there and it's sort of a throwback to the 19th century. And it, it, so I've gone there with my two boys. My wife went last year with one of our kids, and we've gone up there as a family. And I remember going there because they have right next to each other, kind of coming into the main street. They have a Protestant church and they have a Catholic church. And I took my my boys into both. I said, I just I, I want you to notice what looks different here. And I don't give this illustration to shame. You know, people come from different backgrounds, but I think it was very instructive because there are really important differences here. And they go into the Catholic Church and it was, there was gold-plated this and there was a picture of the Virgin Mary on the ceiling and there were statues all up front and the whole thing was just, there was a ton to look at. Then I said, now I want you to go into the Protestant Church, which was next door. Boring. Plain, wooden pews. Maybe a cross up front, a pulpit. But I wanted them to see, and it gave a good lesson there, to see why did these churches look so different? Because their aims are so different. And their understanding of the second commandment is, in fact, very different. The reason that the Protestant church looks so plain is because of the conviction that we want to teach people. We want to preach that the word is going to be central. And yes, they will not see all the things that... that you know, maybe a, a fourth grader would be really enamored to see. But they're going to hear. And over time, that hearing will lead to faith by God's Spirit. And it's the same thing. We may not have the same sort of debates about icons and statues. But don't churches face that all the time? What are we going to do? How are we going to grow? How are we going to have people? Well, we're going to put on a show. And it's going to be it's going to be dazzling. And we're going to get the zip line in here. And it's going to be awesome. And you know what? People like it. Now, you won't like it. Church will be empty next week. But people like it. That's fun. They feel like that's awesome. That's entertaining. That is every, oh man, that's just as good as Hollywood can do. You adorn the spectacle or you can educate the people. And I will take the plain, boring church preaching the Bible any day. And when the persecution comes, I'll watch those people. And when their children have to be raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord, I'll go with those folks. So let us remedy the ignorance of God's people by giving them what they need, not necessarily what they want. Finally, we obey the second commandment by looking to Christ as the fulfillment of the second commandment. John fourteen nine. He who has seen me has seen the Father. John ten nineteen. I and the Father are one. Colossians 1 15. He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God. Jesus did the seemingly impossible. He allowed human beings to see the God who could not be seen. That's the mystery 
and the majesty of the incarnation. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Okay, look at the coin. Who's on it? Caesar, give it to Caesar. You ever notice what Jesus is doing there? Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. By implication, render unto God's the things that are mine. And who has my image? Well, Christ is the image. And then you are made in God's image. Render your lives unto God. Give, give the coin to Caesar. His picture is on it, but God's picture is on you. And God's invisible face has been made visible in the person of Jesus Christ. So you see, on the other side of the incarnation, we do not obey the second commandment fully unless we bow before the God who has made himself known in the person of Jesus Christ. We don't need pictures, we don't need statues, we don't need icons because we have the icon. Colossians 1.15, he is the icon in the Greek, the image, the icon of the invisible God. And in the face of Christ, we see the face of God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that in studying these commandments, we would not become belligerent people, but believing people. That we would not become the sort of people who look to condemn, but the people who look to worship in spirit and in truth as you have called us and commanded us. For each of these commandments are for our good, that we may live life as it's meant to be lived and find in Christ alone abundant life. In his name we pray, amen.